All right, let's turn to Psalm 119 and um, look at, we're going to read both sets from last week because we did not finish our set from last week, verse number 129 down through verse number 144, okay? Let's read this together. It says this, Thy testimonies are wonderful. Therefore doth my soul keep them. The entrance of thy words giveth light. It giveth understanding unto the simple. I opened my mouth and panted, for I long for thy commandments. Look thou upon me and be merciful unto me, as thou usest to do unto those that love thy name. Order my steps in thy word, and let not any iniquity have dominion over me. Deliver me from the oppression of man, so will I keep thy precepts. Make thy face to shine upon thy servant, and teach me thy statutes. Rivers of waters run down mine eyes, because they keep not thy law. Righteous art thou, O Lord, and upright are thy judgments. Thy testimonies that thou hast commanded are righteous and very faithful. My zeal hath consumed me because mine enemies have forgotten thy words. Thy word is very pure, therefore thy servant loveth it. I am small and despised, yet do not I, yet do not I forget thy precepts. Thy righteousness is an everlasting righteousness, and thy law is the truth. Trouble and anguish have taken hold on me, yet thy commandments are my delights. The righteousness of thy testimonies is everlasting. Give me understanding, and I shall live. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you so much for your sustaining grace, Lord, that met us this morning as we woke up. Your mercy was new. Lord, your goodness toward us is fresh, and it hasn't diminished even a little bit. Lord, thank you so much for that. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for saving poor sinners who called upon you. Lord, thank you for all these people that are here and also those listening in, no doubt, that have a desire to learn your word. And Lord, as we look in, in your word today, you know I have nothing to offer except your word. And I pray that you would enable us, each one of us, including myself, to truly learn and understand your word. And that your word to us would be wonderful just like the, uh, the verse in Psalm 119 says. So, Lord, would you please guide us and help us know, know and understand you better? In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> Psalm 119, uh, just as a quick review, verse number 133. Order my steps in thy word, and let not any iniquity have dominion over me. The first thing I want you to remember is this. You, sh- you and I should never be hesitant to ask God to both lead us in doing His will, but also we should never be hesitant to give God absolute and total veto power as to the steps of our life and the decisions that we make. In other words, just because we set our heart on something should never be cause to not lay that thing 
continually at God's feet and say, Lord, order my steps in this matter. All the way up until the moment that it's done. All the way up until the moment that it's done. Sometimes we get in, we get in our minds something that we want to do. We set our heart on it. And we pursue that course of action without, and, and we stop laying it at God's feet. It becomes, it, it loses its, its proper place in our, in our mind and heart. But the Lord says, just this prayer here. In this matter, Lord, order my steps. If you don't want it, I don't want it. If you want it, I want it. And that's hard to do. What that is, that's a daily and continual submission and yielding to God's will. Because, you know, the truth is that we often get things wrong. <laughs> we often just mess up and misunderstand what God wants uh, for us to do. And, of course, we know the Scripture is our primary source and guidance in what we should do. But, but uh, that's something we should always lay at the Lord's feet is this prayer. Order my steps in thy word. But the second part of this says, And let not any iniquity have dominion over me. Can somebody give me an explanation of what this idea of dominion, what this idea of, we talked about it last week, the idea of freedom. What does it mean to be, to, to be free from iniquity? What does that mean? Can somebody help me with that? Yes, sir. It's the absence of our own way and we are dominated by God's way. Exactly. You weren't here last week though, were you? Okay. That's pretty good. All right, so what, what, when, see, as we said last week, we often, people talk about they want, they want liberty, they want to be free, but often in our society, especially the freedom is actually, they want, a lot of people want in that wicked sin nature that we have, that wicked nature wants freedom to sin. But the problem is what they don't understand is that when you give yourself and yield to sin, it becomes your dominator. You don't have a choice. Jesus said, he that committeth sin is the servant of sin. That means it's your master and you're the slave. And you do its bidding and you no longer have a choice in the matter. That's not freedom, <laughs> like people think. On the other hand, when we, when we yield ourselves to the Lord, we are freed from sin. It, it does not dominate us the Lord becomes the one who rules our lives and what we do. And we gladly yield to that. And what we find is that when you yield to the Lord, the Lord, the Lord is your master and we are His servant. We are far more than a servant, but we are also His servant. But His, His lordship over us is far, far better, more kind, and, and produces far greater fruit than that which sin uh, produces in our lives when it dominates us. And so <clears throat> we have to have a right understanding. Today is July 2nd, and two days will be the uh, is Independence Day. Do not call it July 4th any more than you would call it July 2nd today. It's Independence Day, right? That's just my personal little quirk. Uh, some people, they do it and they lose the meaning of it. But what does it mean to be free? Uh, it doesn't mean free to sin, but it means free from the dominion of sin. And uh, that's what, obviously what the Lord wants us to have. Now, I just want to make a few more comments on this set. Um, let me get down in my notes where we need to be. 
Verse number 30, 134 says, Deliver me from the oppression of man, so will I keep thy precepts. The idea of oppression is pushing down. We, call it, we might say suppression. But the idea of suppression or oppression means something is pushing you down so that you could not, it, it hinders you from doing the things that you would do. And I, I came across this quote that I thought was really good by uh, Spurgeon in the Treasure of David. It says this, It is said that oppression makes a wise man mad. And no doubt it has made many a righteous man sinful. This is true. And if there's any doubt about this, you, you should go to a place, you know, we have sometimes, at least I do, have this idea that in places where there's a high level of persecution, that Christianity is pure. And generally speaking, that's true, but it's also small. That's what people don't understand. Because the oppression, it drives away the majority of people. That's, that's one part about persecution that people don't understand. They think, you know, especially some of the, and if I offend you, I'm not trying to offend you, but I, I'm going to say it anyway. Some of the dumb things people say, almost desirous that our country might, might become a, a country that persecutes Christians, that is stupid. Amen. You should not want that. Amen. Now, because if you've ever seen that, that is, that is, a, that is a condition that is not desirable. Now, sometimes the Lord allows that, and sometimes He has purposes in that, but that is not something we should be seeking after or hoping for. You think, well, it'll purify the church. You know what it also do? Empty the church. It's true, because few people want that. That's what it, that, this is what this quote brings out. It says this, uh, no doubt it has made many a righteous man sinful. Oppression now. Oppression is in itself wicked, and it drives men to wickedness. You know, if you were under pressure, and you were under actual, real, physical persecution for your faith and for your righteousness, you would find it a lot more difficult to do it. It is much easier to live right in freedom. Just, it. you might say, well, I don't know if I believe that. As a person having seen it with my own eyes, it is, it is, I just, you just have to trust me. It's true. Um, he says, we little, and this is Spurgeon speaking from the 19th century in the 1800s. Here's what he says. We little, we little know how much of our virtue is due to our liberty. How much of our upright living is due to the freedom that we have to live uprightly? But then on the, on the other hand, let me, and we're talking about oppression. That's in our text. Would you be faithful to God and live uprightly if it cost you something to do it? And I'm not saying that because I'm spiritual and think I would, but I think it's a good question to ponder. We, have so, we enjoy such freedom that is truly, truly unique in world history. It, it is. And it is, if you compare it to gardening, if you compare it to ground, it is caused, it's, it's like ground that is fertile, that allows, the, allows righteousness. And I'm not talking about in society. Forget the society. I'm talking about in an individual believer, individual Christian. It allows that individual Christian to grow and thrive without the, the encumbrance of weeds and fungi and trouble and 
and pestilence and things like that because it's such fertile ground. Freedom. Freedom. I did not intend on talking about freedom today, (laughs) just so you know. But it's just here. He says, Spurgeon goes on to say, "If if we had been in bonds under haughty tyrants, we might have yielded to them. And instead of being confessors, we might now have been apostates. Many, many people have denied the Lord under in the face of oppression and persecution. It's true. We only hear about the ones who didn't deny the Lord. But they, even Paul said, you remember when he was persecuting those of this way, talking about the, the believers, he says, I compelled them to blaspheme. That means force. There were some that did blaspheme the name of Christ under persecution. When the stress of oppression was taken off, he would go his own way, and that way would be the way of the Lord. Although we ought not to yield to the threatenings of men, that's true, yet many do so. The wife is sometimes compelled by the oppression of her husband to act against her conscience, children, and servants, and even a whole, whole nations have been brought into the same difficulty. Their sins will be largely laid, and it, listen now, their sins will be largely laid at the oppressor's door. And it usually pleases God ere long to overthrow those powers and dominions which compel men to do evil. Aren't you glad that in the book of Revelation, you know, you have the, the, the letters to the seven churches, and one of the churches says, uh, the Lord speaking of persecution, he says, you will be tried, seven, uh, tried ten days, right? Aren't you glad that God limited it? Because he knows we would not be able to endure it long term. So he, he allows it, but then he limits it, and he, bring, he brings us out of it. That's just the way God has always done. If you look at church history, that's what you'll find. Periods of persecution eventually end, eventually end. And uh, so that quite what I think, I think that is uh, a very incisive uh, quotation by Spurgeon uh, from his day, which is not much different than our day. All right, verse 136, if you would, says this, rivers of water run down mine eyes because they keep not thy law. We'll see something in the next set that's similar, but I just want to, let me read it again and I'll ask you a question. Rivers of water, rivers of waters run down mine eyes. What is he referring to? Tears, okay. Rivers of waters run down mine eyes because they keep not thy law. So David, assuming David wrote this, David was in a society in which around him were people that did not keep God's law, all right? He looked out at that society, and he saw a lot of people who did not keep God's word, did not honor God, who disrespected the Lord. You say in Israel in David's time? Yes, in Israel in David's time. It is a mistake to think that in, even in the reigns of David and Solomon and the good kings, that the society was pure and righteous. That just simply wasn't the case. And it certainly wasn't true in the New Testament time. Rather, the opposite. But David's response is tears when he sees people. Let me ask you a question. This is the question. When you see sin around you in society, when you see it on the news, and I'll talk a little bit about this in the morning, uh, in the morning service, but you just, you really got to be careful how much you bombard and I bombard our, our minds with the likes of Fox News. 
There is so much trash. Not to mention the narratives, the lies, uh, the brainwashing, all that goes on. And, you know, I, I mean, just as a personal note, I mean, when I look at news, generally Fox News is what I look at because, you know, I don't want to be warped with even further out narratives that are, already exist out there. My wife and I have a difference of opinion on this matter, and that's okay. But she looks at, she looks at a different one. She, look, she likes to look at USA Today, and I generally look at Fox News. But let me tell you something. <clears throat> you better be careful what that does to your mind. You see all that trash and sin that's glorified and news, and you get, you get the impression it's everywhere, and it is everywhere, but it's far more on the news than it is act, in actuality. But let me ask you the question. I'm, I'm sidetracked here, but let me get back to my point. When you see that stuff on a daily basis, how does that affect you? Does it make you angry or does it make you sad? Right here, how did it affect the psalmist when he saw the news? If I can use that. He wept. He wept. Let me explain something to you. There are times when it's right to be angry, but it's far less than you think and I think. The Bible still said that the wrath, the wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. And the problem is sometimes we have taken that verse, right? And we have, we have said that we've, we, instead of say, saying we're angry, we'll say we have righteous indignation. And that makes it sound spiritual. When actually all it is is a pretext to act in the flesh out of anger because of society. And I've seen, listen, I've seen Christian people, I mean God's children, who react to society in anger and want to pull out their guns and start shooting. Whoa, 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 whoa. Ye know not what spirit ye are of. That's, not, that's what the disciples saw when they rejected Christ. Remember? When they were with Christ, and they say, Lord, should we call down fire now like Elijah did? He's, and the Lord said, the Son of Man has not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. He wept. He wept. <clears throat> I have an AR-15. Are you surprised? I'm glad I have an AR-15. But that AR-15 is for self-defense, not to shoot sinners. Not to, to have an uprising against a government that I don't like. We should be crying, not arming for that reason. The Lord said, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets, and stonest them which are sent unto thee. How often would I have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings, and ye would not. Another time the Lord looked over the cities of Jerusalem and wept over it. It's all about your spirit, you see, how you respond to it. Let's look at the next set. Verse 137, Righteous art thou, and upright are thy judgments. 138. Thy testimonies that thou hast commanded are righteous. Look down a little bit further. 
Verse 142, thy righteousness is an everlasting righteousness. Verse 144, thy, the righteousness of thy testimonies is everlasting. Here's what you have. Two times in this, in this set of eight, this octet, you have the Lord called, as described as righteous. And two times in this set of eight, you have the word of the Lord being referred to as righteous. Secondly, two to, uh, one time in this set, you have the Lord is called righteous and His Word is called righteous. And also in this set of eight, you have the Word of the Lord described as righteous, everlastingly righteous. And you also have the Word of the Lord described as everlastingly righteous. So you have God and His Word are described the same. Twice of the Lord, twice of the Word. Now, let's not confuse ourselves. The Word of the Lord is not the Lord. The Lord is a personal God. He is not, a, he's not the Bible. The Bible is not God. But the Bible reveals God. And those two, the Word of God, the revelation, the communication of God as, as He has given it to us, is inextricably connected to God Himself. Here's what I mean by that. That's why, that's why the description of God and the description of the Word go together. And they're described in this, in this set of eight as together. <clears throat> because the Word of the Lord reflects and illustrates God's own righteousness. In other words, the Word of God, not just His righteousness, but the Word of God reflects and demonstrates and illustrates God Himself in all of His attributes. That's how we know Him. That's how we know who He is. We don't know the way the Lord is by our experience. We don't know that the way God is, and we don't know God by virtue of, of our, our personal interaction with God. Now, th those things kind of uh, are in addition and help, un help us understand the Word of God, but the Word of God is God's revelation of Himself, the sum total of His revelation. And especially, you have two aspects of that, right? The Word of God as God's revelation. You have the written Word of God, but you also have God's revelation of Himself in the living Word of God, the capital W. That's Jesus. But even what we know of Jesus is found in the Scripture. So what, is this, what does this mean? They're connected. And this means to attack God's Word is to attack God Himself. <clears throat> to alter God's Word is an attempt to alter God. Now, we know we can't alter God. But what people do is they try to attack God's Word or alter God's Word or explain away God's Word in order to create and, and imagine a God that suits their own desires. If you can alter the Word of God, you can alter the God that you think is true. I mean, a good example of this is the, <clears throat> the uh, issues of homosexuality that are so common. Uh, those, of course, most of the time, Romans chapter 1 is totally ignored, or someone will, will explain that away uh, by saying, well, you know, Paul, that's, that's what Paul thought in his, his society, you know, as if it only exists in the first century. 
But then you go back to things like Sodom and Gomorrah or uh, in Leviticus, the different uh, laws that dealt with that particular sin. People explain it away. I've heard it with my own ears. People say, oh, well, the reason why God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah was not because men with men working that which is unseemly. No, no, it was because that Lot, uh, the, the people of Sodom were inhospitable to guests. And so God rained fire from heaven. Why are you laughing, David? Are you mocking? Yes. <laughs> but see, what is the attempt to do? Alter the word of God, the meaning of the word of God, so that you have a God who is open and affirming to that sin. Again, to attack God's word is to attack God himself. To alter it is to attempt to alter God himself. That's why in this passage, the righteousness of God and the righteousness of the word of the Lord, the everlasting righteousness of God is, the, is also applied to the word of God as everlastingly righteous as well. By altering God's word, those that do this imagine that God is different than he is revealed to be in his word. For his word reveals who and how he is. Therefore, if, if his word can be altered to suit our tastes, so then can God himself be altered, at least in our imagination. This is why the word of God, again, we do not worship the Bible. I, notwithstanding the verse in Psalms, thou hast magnified thy word above all thy name, that doesn't mean we worship the Bible. But it is... What, but that verse, what that verse is telling us is that what does it matter if you know God's name if you don't know anything about Him? It's just a name. This morning we'll talk about the name of the Lord. What does it matter if you know a, if you know a, a five-letter word like Jesus, but you know nothing about Jesus in truth, which is revealed in His word? You just have a name. So His word reveals Him. That's the point. Now look at verse 139, and we'll try to conclude here. Verse 139 says, uh, and this is related to 136, about rivers of water run down mine eyes. It says, My zeal hath consumed me, because mine enemies have forgotten thy words. Again, you have a society that is forsaking the Lord. But notice the response is zeal. All right. His enemies are not following God's word. They do not respect, they disrespect God's word. And of course, in 136, you have rivers of water. And then in this verse, you have this, this provoking, this seeing sin is provoking him. And I just want to, I, what, I what I see in this and what I want us to kind of look at and look at some other verses is zeal, which is what you see here, the word, versus the opposite of zeal, which is apathy. Zeal versus apathy. You know what apathy means? Listen to this. Apathy is the freedom from or the insensibility to passion or feeling. It is a passionless existence. It also means indolence of mind. That means laziness. Indifference to what is calculated to move the feelings or excite interest or action. Here, as a believer... Some things ought to excite zeal in us. And sin is one of those things. Seeing it. An apathetic person sees sin around them and doesn't weep. Forget angry. 
doesn't weep. You know why? Because they're dull and numb to it. They don't have feeling. They're insensitive to it. Now, of course, we know toward the Lord, the things of God are, are, ought to be able to stir passion in us. But also, sinful things ought to stir passion in us. We ought not just sit by and be indifferent and be apathetic. Our Lord was not like that. For an example, if you would, look at John chapter 2. John chapter 2, verse 13, says this, And the Jews' Passover was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem and found in the temple those that sold oxen and sheep and doves and the changers of money sitting. And when he had made a scourge of small cords... He actually took the time (laughs) to make a whip. That's how stirred up he was. He drove them all out of the temple and the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers' money and overthrew the tables and said unto them that sold doves, Take these things hence. Make not my father's house and house of merchandise. And his disciples remembered that it was written. This is a prophecy. The zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. Why did Jesus do that? Because what he saw, the evil and the sin and covetousness and making a mockery and merchandise of of this holy place, God's own house, yea, his own house, stirred passion in him. He did not stand there and look at that unmoved. You see that? He was not apathetic. He was zealous. Now, again, you can't look at this and have a pretext. Remember, you're talking about the Lord Jesus Christ, the one without sin. So even, even what he did that did there in his zeal was right and holy. If we try to mimic that, we're going to find ourselves in trouble. I'll just tell you right now. But it does demonstrate zeal and passion. Look at Revelation chapter 3. <clears throat> Verse 14, the letter to the church of Laodicea says this, Unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know thy works, that thou art neither hot nor cold nor hot. I would thou wert cold or hot. So then, because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. Because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing, and knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire, that thou mayest be rich in white raiment, that thou mayest be clothed, and that the shame of thy nakedness did not appear. And anoint thine eyes with eye salve, that thou mayest see. Now look at verse 19. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be what? zealous, therefore, and repent. This is an apathetic church. It was plagued with apathy. And prophetically, this this church represents the final period of time before the Lord returns. says this, 
Abundance had lulled them into thinking they lacked nothing. If this is not us. And because they felt they lacked nothing, they felt nothing. In reality, they should have been alarmed. Listen now. In reality, this church, these people should have been alarmed at their condition, but they felt nothing. Neither cold nor hot. They were poor, naked and blind, but they were not bothered by this condition. This is what you might call deadly apathy. You know, you can't control, and I can't control everything that happens in society. And everything that we see cannot absolutely get our goat all the time. But that over which you have power, when something is not right, it should bother you. You should care and you should have enough zeal for the Lord for, for, it to be, for it to stir some response, some level of passion or care so that some action is taken. And I'm especially looking at the men and referring to the way we respond to things in our family that we know are not right. We know there's apathy. We know there's sin present. We know these things are present and we're just like, uh, nothing I can do. That is not what our Lord did. And these are matters over which we do have substantial power. To sit by and just be indifferent is not pleasing to God. He expects us to take leadership and to, to make moves in our zeal for the Lord. Of course, following all the scriptural directions about our right attitude and how to deal with those things and all that. But the first thing is we should care and be moved, not indifferent. Apathy, here's what happens. We're almost finished. The problem is that the Word of God is dishonored. We're indifferent, and so you know what happens? That sin is allowed to remain unchallenged, and it gets worse and worse, and eventually its fruits are born to the harm of those we love. Because we were apathetic. We sit idly by. And those that we love and that which is important is harmed. I want to say this to to end. Why are we so apathetic in our day? And this is not not a Choice Hills Baptist Church problem. This is not a, 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 a Ben problem or a Brother Pete problem or an Adam problem. No, this is, a, this is all of our society. Apathy has gone through the roof. And I'll tell you what I think it is. And look, I have one. People know I'm kind of a geek on, you know, devices. But TVs, phones, computers, devices, social media, and media in general numb us to unrighteousness because we are bombarded with it. Say Fox News. All the time to where we don't, we, it's nothing. It's nothing to us. We don't feel it anymore. That's why we got to be careful. And we got to limit it. This is one of the reasons God tells us to not set any wicked thing before our eyes. Psalm 101 verse 3. Because by often looking at it, we become apathetic to it. And when we have become apathetic to it, We allow it to persist. 
we don't feel it. When our Lord went into the temple and he saw things that were really, really wrong, not just a little wrong, but really wrong, he said, well, you know, no, he did not. At a minimum, his zeal was stirred. I just want to challenge you. We should have zeal when it comes to the things of God. We should have zeal when it comes to sin, not to sin, but to respond to sin rightly and not just sit idly by and let it happen unchallenged. One of the reasons, I got to quit, but one of the reasons that sin persists is not because we, we don't fix it. Oftentimes, who in the world knows how to fix everything? I don't know that. I don't know how to fix problems in my family. But oftentimes it persists simply because there's no challenge at all of any kind. Not words, not actions, nothing. And a large cause of that is apathy. The Lord says this. The Lord wants us to be fervent. Romans, right? Chapter 12. Fervent in spirit. That's zeal. And that's God's command for all of us, men and women. Let's pray.